Will you take your Bibles and turn to Paul's epistle to the Colossians? I would like to speak to you from Colossians chapter 3, the first 10 verses, under the heading, Living the Victory of Christ's Resurrection. Colossians 3, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. This is Resurrection Sunday, when we celebrate the magnificent reality that after his suffering in our stead as our substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ, our omnipotent Savior, triumphantly rose from the dead. He emerged from the tomb of death, an amazing reality, the most glorious event in history when the Son of God became the first fruit of a future resurrection harvest of which all of the redeemed belong. And after our Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he ascended back into the glory, back into glory, and so shall all we who are united to him. That is the hope that we have in Christ. And this, of course, is the source of, of unending consolation for the redeemed. And it has been down through redemptive history. Because he lives, we too shall live, amen? That's the reality of this. Death is swallowed up in victory, Paul says. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And with those early saints, we stand in amazement as we look into that empty tomb. The reality of what occurred there is absolutely staggering to our imagination. I have been at the tomb, as a number of you have, at least where they believe it was. I've been in, I've seen it. And I can tell you there is no rotting corpse in the royal bedchamber. It was empty. Only the linen wrappings that once covered the Lamb of God were neatly wrapped on that cold stone so it is empty. The debt of sin has been paid. It could not hold the one who had power over death. 
And no wonder the theme of Peter's first sermon on the birthday of the church at Pentecost, he said this in Acts 2, beginning in verse 23, God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. As I contemplate God's plan of redemption, my thoughts often go back to a number of prophecies concerning the Messiah that we read about in Scripture. Going all the way back to Genesis 3 and verse 15, we read God saying this, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed, referring to Satan and unbelievers, and her seed, referring to Christ and those who belong to him through faith. He, referring to Christ, shall bruise you on the head, and you, referring to Satan, shall bruise him on the heel. This is often called the Proto-Evangelium, meaning the first gospel, the first hint of a good news. Indeed, Satan will strike at the heel of the woman's offspring, providing a wound, but only a wound that would harm, not one that would ultimately destroy and defeat. And we know that Roman executioners would take the nails and they would place it right under the ankle bone in a spot right by the heel, and they would drive it through both ankles. They would either do it by putting the feet on either side of the post and driving them in independently, or they would put the feet together, turn the body sideways, and drive them in that way. Unimaginable torture that our Savior endured on our behalf. However, we see that the woman's offspring, the Lord Jesus Christ, would render a fatal blow to Satan crushing his head, symbolizing defeat. And he did this on the cross and in the resurrection. And all through the Old Testament, we see prophecies concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, after his crucifixion and his resurrection, Jesus expounded upon the scriptures concerning himself. For example, in Luke 24, 44, we read, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. On this resurrection morning, I think it's appropriate, very fitting that we remember some of the magnificent symbolism that we see in the Old Testament sacrificial system. And frankly, those are anchored in three significant texts. I'll mention them briefly. First of all, the Passover in Exodus 12, where the blood of an innocent sacrifice delivered God's covenant people from death. And secondly, the Day of Atonement that we read about primarily in Leviticus 16 that anticipated the Messiah's propitiatory sacrifice by his blood. And probably most importantly, the text that we find in Isaiah chapter 52, beginning in verse 13 through Isaiah 53 and verse 12, sometimes called Isaiah's gospel. 
And that's the one that preceded all of the other Gospels, a Gospel that depicted the suffering Savior's sacrifice. And it depicted it 700 years before it actually happened. In fact, we read in Isaiah 53, verse 4, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. He goes on to say, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And I want to remind you this morning that Christ's death corresponded with the ritual of the scapegoat that was performed on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. On that day, the high priest would first secure the necessary sacrificial animals, a bull for his own sin offering. He would also get two male goats for the people's sin offering, and also two rams, one for a burnt offering. And he would then slaughter the bull for his own offering. And I might add that these sacrifices were deliberately gruesome. There was blood everywhere to be a graphic reminder of the hideous nature of sin and the fact that only the shedding of blood would bring remission of sin. Before entering the Holy of Holies with the blood of the bull, he had to create a cloud of incense in the Holy of Holies that would cover the Shekinah glory, the brilliant, dazzling light of God's glory that would hover between the cherubim above the mercy seat. He did this to veil or to dim the ineffable glory of God that hovered there so that he could enter and his life would be spared. And to enter the Holy of Holies, he had to pass through three areas in the tabernacle, later in the temple. He took the blood and went through the door into the outer court first, and then through another door into the holy place, and then finally he would disappear behind the veil into the holy of holies. And the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 4 and for, verse 14 that this was symbolic of Jesus, our great high priest, who passed through the heavens after making the final and perfect sacrifice of himself. And there he went through the atmospheric heaven, then into the stellar heaven, and ultimately into the very abode of God. Well, back to the priest on the Day of Atonement. Once inside, he would take some of the blood of the bull and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat seven times, the mercy seat being the place of propitiation. Propitiation meaning the place of appeasing or placating God's wrath. And there the justice of God would be temporarily and symbolically appeased because all sin must be, must be punished. And I might remind you that atonement that was made symbolically there and later on in reality with Christ 
means that a, a payment had to be made. There had to be a moral or legal repayment for a fault or an injury. That's what atonement is all about. And atonement always involved two things, satisfaction and substitution. There had to be satisfaction for the offended holiness of God. And that could only be accomplished by an acceptable sacrifice, a substitution for the guilty party. So all of this is being symbolized in what occurred on the Day of Atonement. Then lots were cast for the two goats to determine which one would be slaughtered and which one would be the scapegoat that would be driven away and loosed in the wilderness. The goat to be slaughtered for the people's sin offering was then sacrificed and its blood was taken into the Holy of Holies and applied to the mercy seat as the bull's blood had been. And next, the high priest would go outside of the tent and make atonement for the altar of burnt offering using the blood of both the bull and the goat. And then the second goat, the one that was kept alive, was the one that would symbolically receive the sins of the people laid on its head. And then it was driven outside of the camp into a desolate place from which it would never return. And traditionally, it is said that the goat was led to a high cliff and pushed backward over the precipice to prevent him from ever returning to the camp. The two goats symbolized propitiation and expiation. Very important concepts. Again, to propitiate means to appease or to placate or to satisfy the wrath of God against us. 1 John 4.10 tells us that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And to expiate means to remove the guilt of our sins. The goat that was slaughtered symbolized propitiation. The goat that was sent into the wilderness, the scapegoat, symbolized expiation, the permanent removal of the guilt of our sins. Beloved Jesus was the only possible substitute that could accomplish this. His death accomplished both pardon and cleansing. He offered himself in our place to both propitiate to appease the righteous wrath of God that we deserve, and also to expiate or to remove the guilt of our sin. God alone covers or erases, or as the scriptures say, blots out our sin from his sight through the blood of Christ. God alone, according to Isaiah 6, 7, is the one that takes away our sin. There we read, behold, your iniquity is taken away. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting our trespasses against us. As a child, we used to sing a great old hymn, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? 
Nothing blood, the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's the concept. I figured most of you would remember that hymn. Well, once the earlier sacrifices of the bull and the goat were accomplished, the fat of the sin offering had to be burned on the altar. And then the remains of the bull and the goat had to be taken outside of the camp, away from the people, to be burned. The priests could have no part in the sins of the people. They were not allowed to eat the meat of the sin offering on the Day of Atonement. The sin offering had to be offered up completely. So instead of eating the remains of the animals, they were taken outside of the camp and they were burned. Dear friends, this shows how much God hates sin. It is so defiling, so reprehensible that not only must it be punished, but also removed from the very presence of God and from among the people of God. Sin was so detestable to God that a, a sin offering could not even be burned upon the great altar. It had to be removed completely from his holy presence and burned completely outside the camp. And in Hebrews 13, verse 12, we get a better explanation of all of that. There we read, therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Well, all of the rituals and sacrifices of the, of the Day of Atonement had to occur year after year after year after year. A foreshadow of a permanent cleansing of God's people. One that had to be accomplished by a better priest. One that had to be a better sacrifice until finally on the cross of Calvary, the Lord Jesus Christ cried out, it is finished. Well, the Old Testament prophecies also predicted Christ's resurrection, as did Jesus himself. And as such, the Father accepted the atoning work of Christ's sacrificial death on the cross, which guarantees our future resurrection as I mentioned a few minutes ago when we were taking the Lord's Supper, Romans 4 and verse 25 tells us that he was delivered over because of our transgressions and he was raised because of our justification. And indeed, every born-again believer celebrates the resurrection of Christ because of its implications for each of us. But if someone were to ask you, how does the resurrection of Christ impact your life today? How would you answer that? What difference does it make in how you live right now? 
Is there a dynamic power associated with Christ's resurrection that is presently at work in your heart and in your mind? I hope that's true. Certainly, if you're truly born again, it is. But what does that look like? How does that work? What would you say? Well, I hope you will have a better grasp on that as we go through this text, because this text helps us understand that. And that's why I've entitled my discourse to you this morning, Living the Victory of Christ's Resurrection. I want to look at this passage in, under three headings very simply. We're going to see our resurrection union with Christ. We're going to see our resurrection living in Christ and our resurrection hope in Christ. And I pray that these astounding realities will stir your holy affections and cause you to live the victory of Christ's resurrection for his glory and for your joy. Now, let me remind you of the context briefly here. The church at Colossae was founded by a dear brother by the name of Epaphras, who was probably saved in Ephesus, where he encountered the Apostle Paul. Paul was there for about three years. And the Jewish and Gentile composition of the church was, frankly, a bizarre blending of culture, of religion, and philosophy. And of course, Satan uses all of these types of things to promote his deadly heresies that are so appealing to the flesh. The Gentiles were heavily influenced by Greek philosophy. They believed that the soul was some divine spark that was imprisoned in the body. And of course, this was the philosophic seed that grew into various forms of what is called Gnosticism. And for them, the spirit was good and matter was evil, and therefore they scoffed at the notion that God would become man. No God would ever do that, so they scoffed at Christ. They could not fathom a God who would take on human flesh and become a God-man. Moreover, they could not comprehend how Jesus could be the embodiment of truth. They believed in transcendent spiritual knowledge that was only available to the select few. Only the highly enlightened initiates could ever ascend to the loftiest level of spirituality. Then you have the Jewish believers that were also in the church, and they brought with them some of their baggage, especially asceticism, which is basically the practice of strict self-denial as a spiritual discipline. And then also legalism, which was salvation plus circumcision, plus the practice of feasts and festivals and, and ceremonial rituals, dietary laws, Sabbaths, and all of that kind of thing. They also believed in the worship of angels. And so the church was a seething cauldron of deadly deceptions. Well, given all of this, Epaphras, I'm sure, was pulling out his hair, if he still had some, and he went all the way to Rome to seek counsel from the Apostle Paul, who was in prison there. And by God's grace, his counsel is available to all of us in the letter to the Colossians. In chapters 1 and 2, he focuses on the whole idea that Christ should be the object of our faith. 
In fact, he says in chapter 2 and verse 9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. So that was the focus of chapter 1 and 2. The chapters focus on in chapters 3 and 4 is Christ is the source of our life, as we will see. Now, with that background, we look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Therefore, if, it could also be translated if then, or even with the word since, since you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Now here we begin our little outline, and we see the importance of, number one, our resurrection union with Christ. If then you have been raised up with Christ, verse 1, Beloved, this speaks of a co-resurrection. Do you realize that we have been raised up with Christ? Here Paul begins with a simple and yet profound appeal. He's wanting everyone that names the name of Christ to live in conformity with your resurrection union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Stop relapsing into paganism with all of its idolatry and gross immorality. I mean, they had their own version of all the vile perversions that we see today that are being pushed upon everyone. But here, Paul is speaking primarily to Christians who were in the church, professing believers, and he wants to remind them, folks, there is no life in what the world has to offer. There is no lasting joy or peace in the gross immoralities of the culture. You're not going to find that. Don't relapse back into that. There is no eternal life in those false religious teachers that are promoting their garbage. So don't allow yourself to be enslaved to those things once again. And of course, the real issue is, well, how, how can I do that? And the answer is because you have been raised up with Christ. There is a power that is within you. You have been co-resurrected with him. Now, physically, we exist in this world, but spiritually, you must remember, beloved, that we are citizens of another kingdom. We're aliens here. Don't ever forget that. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6, Paul says, we've been raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In other words, we've been co-resurrected with Christ because we are in Christ. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, you're familiar with this text, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. My mind immediately when I read these things goes to the appalling wickedness that we see in our culture today. And I'm reminded every time I look at it that my goodness, I live in a parallel universe. I, I don't belong here. I can't identify with anything that they're talking about, nor can they understand my worldview as a believer. Again, 
In chapter 2 of Colossians, in verse 12, he reminds us that we have been buried with him in baptism. It's not water baptism here. It's the idea of being we've been spiritually immersed into his death and his resurrection. We've been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. The term working translates the Greek term energeia, from which we get the English word energy. In other words, beloved, what happened at the cross is this. In that resurrection, we were resurrected with him, and what happened at the cross is still working in us and for us right now. For this reason, Paul would say in Colossians 1.29, I labor striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. We've got to tap into the power that we already have. At salvation, according to Romans 6 and verse 6, our old self was crucified with him that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. We became... According to 2 Corinthians 5, 17, a new creature, the old things passed away, behold, the new things come. Again, we have a whole new disposition, a new nature. God has radically changed us so that we can live a life that is pleasing to God, a life that is pure and holy. And this is such a magnificent blessing that we possess. And it's for this reason that Paul prayed earnestly for the saints at Ephesus to grab a hold of this. And that's my passion for each of you this morning. I want you to really grab a hold of this, if you will. In Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 18, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. I want you to see this. Then he goes on to say how he longed for them to know, quote, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Colossians 2.13, he made us alive together with him. In other words, we no longer live in the realm of the spiritually dead that have no capacity to respond to spiritual truth. A spiritual transformation has occurred. The magnificent doctrine of regeneration where he raised us from spiritual death to spiritual life. That instantaneous supernatural impartation of spiritual life to a spiritual cadaver. That's what he has done. And he's telling us here that our... Christ's resurrection is our resurrection, and it should therefore be our motivation for godliness. And it is indeed the power thereunto. And so we need to let these things stir our heart to live obediently for the glory of God and thus enjoy all that is ours in Christ Jesus. The world steals all of that away when we get sucked into it. We must be careful that we don't forfeit the blessings that are ours in Christ. So we've seen first our resurrection union with Christ. Now secondly, notice what Paul says regarding our resurrection living in Christ. 
Notice again the admonition, verse 1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, I might add that this is an imperative command. This isn't some casual suggestion here. This is a command. Sometimes we wonder, well, what's God's will for my life? Well, here's one right here, all right? And there's a whole lot of others that are written out for us. Keep seeking. In other words, this is to be an ongoing priority in your life. We need to have an unending preoccupation of Christ. He used to be the desire of our heart. Keep seeking the things above. Well, what are those things? Well, certainly it includes what Paul has been talking about here. The person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is now seated at the right hand of the Father. The one clothed in majesty and honor, the glory, the infinite perfections, the majesty of Christ, the holiness of God, the love of God, worshiping and serving God. In other words, dear Christian, we must become in practice who we are in position. We have a higher calling than just living for ourselves in a world that God has gone to such extraordinary lengths to save us out of. I might add that it is our separation from the world, not our similarity with it, that draws people to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't seek the pleasures of the world. Just enjoy what God has given us. Don't be consumed with all of the, the needs that we think we have to have in the world. Think how mad we get when our internet isn't as fast as it should be, right? Jesus said, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you, Matthew 6, verse 31 and following. In other words, seek his priorities, which are really twofold. Seek his kingdom, seek his righteousness. That needs to be the preoccupation of our heart. Charles Spurgeon said, oh, seek to know on earth the peace of heaven, the rest of heaven, the victory of heaven, the service of heaven, the holiness of heaven. You may have foretaste of all these. Seek after them, he says. Seek in a word to be preparing for the heaven which Christ is preparing for you. You are soon to dwell above. Robe yourselves for the great festival. Your treasure is above. Let your hearts be with it. All that you are to possess in eternity is above where Christ is. Rise then and enjoy it. Let hope anticipate the joys which are reserved. And so let us begin our heaven here below. If ye then be risen with Christ, live according to your risen nature, for your life is hid with Christ in God. A wonderful quote. That's what Paul means in verse 2. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. To set your mind means to literally think, to keep on having serious consideration of this, to let your mind dwell on this, to have this as an inner disposition. And it's in the present tense. It's a continuous action. The King James Version says, set your affection on the things above. Ponder, yearn for all that Christ is and all that is yours in him. 
And I fear too often we set our mind on the things that are on the earth. So much of the things that are on the earth come through these little screens that we spend so much of our time looking at. Too often we value the very things that will bring us to ruin and forfeit blessing in our life. We tend to be far too absorbed in and attached to the things of the world. Like those who are at enmity with God. You see these scenes of these trans activists and abortion activists and I mean, these people are just completely out of control. And we read about what's going on in them. For example, in Philippians 3.19, their end is destruction, whose God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Folks, we can't do that. We can't set our mind on social media and our favorite sports team and politics and social issues or certainly pornography and those types of things. Dear Christian, hear and heed what God has said. Keep seeking the things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's the exalted position of glory. Romans 8 and verse 34. We read that he is the one who is at the right hand of God. Who also intercedes for us. Set your mind on that for a while, right? That's... An amazing reality. And why is that? Well, according to Ephesians 1.20, it's because God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Set your mind on these things. Yearn for these things. Ponder these things. Pensively reflect on these things. I don't know how else I can say it. You know, whenever I'm in another country, and I've been in places that are extremely remote, in Africa, Siberia, up in the Arctic Circle, different places, I can tell you that you think a lot about home. You think a lot about home. And the older I get, the more I think about another home that I have yet to see that will be home, finally home. And here's why. Verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have died. Now think about this. This is in the past tense. Which indicates that a death took place sometime in the past. Well, when was that? Well, it was at the cross. Again, Romans 6 and verse 6. Our old self was crucified with him. Colossians 2 and verse 12 that we've talked about. We've been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him. In other words, as believers, we have died to sin. We have died to this world system designed to destroy us. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things pass away, the new things come, and so forth. It's amazing when you think about this. While our unredeemed flesh is still subject to temptation and sin, we are no longer slaves to all of that, like people apart from Christ. That's why it's so ridiculous to try to tell unpeople, unsaved people, to, to act like Christians. They can't do that. They're slaves to their sin. And we would be the same way were it not for God's grace. Well, how come we're no longer slaves to sin? It's because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead physically has raised us from the dead spiritually. 
and it will one day raise us from the dead physically. That's the hope that we have in Christ. For you have died, verse 3, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He goes on to say in Colossians 3, beginning in verse 5, consider, therefore consider yourselves, or the members of your body, therefore, in other words, in light of all these things, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it's because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of, of the one who has created him. Dear friends, these are the marks of godliness. This is resurrection living in Christ. That's what he's showing us here. The indwelling presence of the Spirit of God enables us to do what God has commanded. He doesn't ask us to do things knowing full well that, well, they can never do that. No, he's given us the power to do that. We have to tap into that power. And he applies the power of Christ's resurrection to inform our mind, to inform our conscience, and to animate our will to obedience. He also says in Colossians 3, in verse 12, he says, he reminds them, think of this now, you have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. Let your mind dwell on this for a while. You have been chosen. God has chosen you. You would have never chosen him had he not first chosen you. Moreover, he speaks of how we are holy. We are set apart, set apart from sin unto God, and we're loved. Think about this. So he goes on and says, therefore, put on a heart of compassion kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. See, again, he's listing here what it is to live according to the resurrection of Christ. He goes on, he says, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Folks, again, this is resurrection living in Christ that has been made possible by the power of God in the resurrection that is applied to each of us. I wish I could see the looks on the faces of those Colossians who are wondering, my goodness, really, all of this? All of these spiritual truths, I, I, I thought that only special people could have access to these things. And Paul is basically saying, look, this is, this is revelation coming from God. There's no need for all of this esoteric, mystical, <laughs> hidden, secret knowledge from these false teachers. 
Well, we've seen our resurrection union with Christ and our resurrection living in Christ, and finally, our resurrection hope in Christ. And there's kind of a, a crescendo that goes, goes along with all of this. This is the hope that we have. Verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Now, I ask you, can there be any greater incentive for setting your minds on the things above and not on the things of earth than what we just read. Paul says in Philippians 3.21 that Christ himself will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. How's he going to do that? By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The older I get, the more lowly I realize my body is, right? This is the hope that we have. But right now, he's telling us that our life is hidden with Christ in God. This is utterly mind-boggling. I mean, think about this. What he's saying is that believers actually exist in Christ. He is the source of our spiritual life. Now, think about it this way. The true identity of Christ was and still is concealed, hidden from this world. People without Christ, they, they, they don't see any of that. They, they, they don't understand it. They laugh at it. But the ineffable glory of his infinite perfections and his power have been revealed to those that he has chosen. That is absolutely mind-boggling, not to mention humbling. And we as believers share, therefore, a common life with Christ, a secret communion that is hidden from this world. The God-mocking atheist and the arrogant agnostic cannot see the secrets of heaven. They cannot see the grandeur of the kingdom of God. But dear friends, one day they will when we are revealed with him in glory. That which is hidden is going to be revealed. The world cannot understand Christians today. We are ridiculed and rejected and silenced and belittled and persecuted. People that are spiritually dead are going to do that. They have no capacity to understand our worldview, which is the mind of Christ. But a day is coming when they will see Christ in all of his glory and we will be revealed with him. That's the resurrection hope that we have. Notice again, verse 4, when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Again, he not only gives life, he is life. And Jesus said in John 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the what? And the life. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And when he ascended back into glory, we know that he is going to come again, and we are going to come again with him and be revealed. In fact, in Romans 8 and verse 19, we read that the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. 
I don't think it's waiting any more eagerly than I am. When Christ returns, the wicked, according to Revelation 7 and verse 14, will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And then notice this, and those who are with Him are the called and chosen and faithful. There's the hope that we have. That's resurrection hope. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet appeared what we shall be, 1 John 3, 2, right? Indeed, our life right now is hidden with Christ in God. Ah, but someday the world is going to see that which is currently concealed in the cloak of our own humanity. They will see Christ in all of his glory, and they will see us because we will be like him and will bear, according to Scripture, the image of the heavenly. The Apostle John describes this scene. It was revealed to him in Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. This now, of course, is speaking of Christ's second coming. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Amazing symbolism of glory. And then we read, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And folks, all of this is made possible because of Christ's death and resurrection. No wonder Paul declared in Philippians 3.10, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And later on he adds that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That's what I long for in myself and for you. Likewise, Peter said in 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through, catch this now, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Dear Christian, this is our resurrection hope in Christ. I want to close with these thoughts. Our world is a powder keg ready to explode. If you don't understand this, I don't know where you are. Our country is imploding. We are in a moral, social, and economic freefall. 
Our president and his administration are thoroughly corrupt, immoral, incompetent, and hideously naive. Our enemies, especially China, see our vulnerability and they are licking their chops. We are experiencing the wrath of divine abandonment upon this country that has made a mockery of God in every conceivable way. And when we compare the constellation of prophetic signs that we see in Scripture with all that we see in the world, surely the Lord's return is very near. Oh, dear Christian, get serious about living the victory of Christ's resurrection. And with Charles Wesley, we can sing, Christ the Lord is risen today. Sons of men and angels say, Alleluia. Raise your joys and triumphs high. Sing ye heavens and earth reply. Lives again our glorious King. Where, O death, is now thy sting? Once he died our souls to save. Where thy victory, O grave? Love's redeeming work is done. Fought the fight, the battle won. Death in vain forbids his rise. Christ has opened paradise. And then finally he says, Soar we now where Christ hath led, following our exalted head. Made like him, like him we rise. Ours the cross, the grave, the skies. Alleluia. Father, we thank you for these eternal truths that you have revealed to us because of your great love for us and your desire for us to be not only reconciled to you, but to enjoy your love, to find our greatest delight and satisfaction and rest in you. And I pray that indeed by the power of your spirit that will be accomplished through your word even yet this day. And for those that do not know you as Savior, oh, Father, won't you overwhelm them with the reality of their sin and its eternal consequences and cause them to be born again, that they too might enjoy what we enjoy in Christ, who is our hope and our Redeemer. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.